We would stop at that school every day and see the kids go in, but this playground was right next to the to the to the street, and in that playground they had monkey bars, they had uh, teeter totters, they had swings, and my thing was that I always wanted to go to that school because of the playground because we didn't have all that at the other school. In 1944, eight-year-old Sylvia Mendez didn't understand why she and her brothers couldn't go to the school with the nice playground. Neither could her parents, Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendez. What resulted was Mendez versus Westminster, a landmark court case that shattered many of the legal justifications for segregating public schools. Maybe you haven't heard of the Mendezes. Maybe you're more familiar with the Brown versus the Board of Education decision of 1954. But not only did the Mendez case precede that decision by seven years, it laid the foundation for the United States Supreme Court's declaration, once and for all, that segregated schools were in violation of the Constitution. We sat down with Sylvia Mendez and Gonzalo Mendez Jr. on the 70th anniversary of the resolution to the Mendez case. <laughs> well, Greg, are we good yeah. on sound? Yeah, we're rolling. Good? You can so, hear us? Yes, I can hear you. <laughs> we're good to go. So, okay. So Sylvia and Gonzalo Jr. are warm, welcoming, down-to-earth people. But they're also icons of the school integration movement. Sylvia won a Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2011. Seventy years ago, the Mendez family changed the world. They made America a better place for all of us. My mother says, Sylvia, don't you realize what we were fighting for? Yes, so we could get to that beautiful school in Westminster. She says, no, Sylvia, that's not what we were fighting. We were fighting because under God we're all equal. And you belong at that school just like everybody else belongs to that school. And that's what we were fighting for. In this episode of the Deeper Learning Podcast, you'll learn what they did, how they did it, and how we might be able to follow in their footsteps. Why are we here? What does it mean to live a good life? How can we make a difference in the world for our children and the generations that will follow? How can we make education a force for good? This is Jeff Hittenberger. In this podcast, you'll hear amazing stories about people who have pursued these questions often against great odds, who have made a difference in the world. People who can point us in the direction of doing the same. Let's get started. It all started on a sunny morning in September 1944. Sylvia was eight, Gonzalo was seven, their brother Jerome was six. That morning, they rode with their Aunt Sally and two cousins to Westminster School. Sylvia was excited about the first day at this new school. All dressed up, all, real, all new shoes, new, new dress, new everything. <laughs> but when Aunt Sally talked to the school clerk, it didn't go well. When we were going to get enrolled, she took her two kids, who were light-complected, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, the, the administrator at the school, the one that was admitting us, actually told my aunt that she would keep her two kids in school, even though they were Mexicans, because they didn't have a Mexican-sounding name, and they were like complected. But she actually told them, well, we'll keep your two kids, but those three have to go to the Mexican school. That's when she got up and said, no, if you don't take my brother's she, kids. I always say when I go and speak to students, and that's when she did a Rosa Parks tent <laughs> and said, yeah. I'm not leaving my children here if you won't take my brother's kids. Aunt Sally hustled them into the Buick and hurried back to the Mendez farm. That's when uh, my aunt told my dad what had happened, and she was all upset. My dad told her to calm down. 
you know. It's going to be okay. Sally, it's going to be okay. I'm just going to go talk. There's been a mistake. You know, in Santa Ana, we went to the Mexican school because they told us we were in the, on the side of the Mexican school. Right now we're on the side of the white school. So he, she just told him to, I'll go talk to him tomorrow. Gonzalo Mendez was a confident person. He had come to the United States from Mexico as a child, and now he was an American citizen. His wife, Felicitas, was also an American citizen, born in Puerto Rico. Their children were born in the United States, and they all spoke English fluently. There had to have been a mistake. But when Gonzalo talked to the principal, he got the same story. Your children have to go to Hoover School, the Mexican school. Remember, it was 1944. 350,000 Americans of Mexican heritage were serving in the United States military in World War II. 9,000 Latino American troops would die fighting for their country in World War II. But here in Orange County, a school was refusing to enroll American kids because of their skin color and their Mexican heritage. Gonzalo appealed to the superintendent and then to the school board, but the answer was always the same. Your children have to go to a Mexican school. Gonzalo decided to keep the children home and teach them himself while he decided how to fight this. My father refused to take us to the other school and then the superintendent, uh, he came to the house and told Mr. Mendez, it's against the law. If you don't send your children to school, you have to send them by law to the Mexican school. My dad said, I'm not sending them. He says, well, you'll be in, in against the law if you don't send Throw you in jail, probably. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't send them to school. So the children went to Hoover School. We would walk from the farm with all the Anglo little children to the bus stop, get on the bus. The bus would take us to the white school. All our friends would go into that white school and we had to walk from, from 17th and, that was 17th and Hoover where the white school was. We had to walk into the barrio, yeah. into the Mexican yeah. school. While Westminster School was clean and new, filled with new books and materials, and outfitted with a grass playground equipped with swings, teeter-totter, and monkey bars, Hoover School had no grass, no playground, nothing but dirt. But now, but next to it was a, a, a dairy with cows, and, and it had uh, the fence that had a little bit of electricity on it. And I was there the day that this girl throws a ball and she throws the ball, and it runs over towards the fence, and she's running to grab it, and she grabs a hole of the fence. And the fence was not enough to kill you, or, but to shock you, but once you grab a hole of it like that, it wouldn't let go. She couldn't let go of it. It just happened like that, and she was like, like that, shaking like that. And the teacher had to go all the way around, all the way to the dairy, and tell the, the men to turn off electricity on the farm because one of the students was caught. <laughs> she couldn't let go of that fence. And so uh, that was a bad part and it was all dirt and then, uh, you know, the flies came from the place. Every day the kids would come home and tell their parents about what happened at school that day. One of the rules was that if you spoke Spanish, you got punished. Gonzalo and Felicitas were not going to let this happen to their kids. Gonzalo was a leader in the community. Everybody liked him. And Felicitas? My mother was a feisty Puerto Rican lady. I, I, <laughs> she, she, was, she, was, she was the kind of person that laughed and had a good time and was always happy. And mm -hmm. So when she worked at the, the cantina with my dad, she was always like that. And then in the farm, then she was a, a, 
a boss mm -hmm. for all the women. She was the leader. Well, she was also the boss at the cantina, more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, that's right. You know. <laughs> of all the people whose children were affected by segregation, why did these two decide to challenge the injustice? I think they were at the right place at the right time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they were. It's just, uh, I would think that opportunities like that don't come too often. And they, they just got the opportunity and they went with it. A friend told him about an attorney named David Marcus who had fought segregation in public facilities like parks and pools. They decided to hire David Marcus to fight their case. My mother said to my dad at that time, we have the money, let's go, Gonzalo. Mm -hmm. We have the money, Gonzalo, let's do it. We have the money, Gonzalo, let's do it. And what were they up against? Generations of court-sanctioned discrimination. Let's go back more than 50 years to the morning of June 7, 1892, to a train station in New Orleans, Louisiana. A man named Homer Plessy was part of a multiracial coalition known as the Comité des Citoyens, or the Committee of Citizens. He bought a ticket and boarded a train car marked Whites Only, but no one noticed. That's because Homer Plessy looked like a person of European ancestry. He looked white. In fact, he had eight biological great-grandparents, seven of whom were of European ancestry. Only one was of African ancestry. But according to Louisiana law, that meant that Homer Plessy was black. Homer Plessy was intentionally challenging an 1890 Louisiana law that segregated train cars in the state. He had to tell the train steward that he was not white. The steward summoned a police officer, and Homer Plessy was removed from the train and arrested. His trial in New Orleans was presided over by Judge Howard Ferguson, who found Plessy guilty of violating the Separate Cars Act. The Plessy versus Ferguson case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled seven to one against Plessy and in favor of the state of Louisiana. According to the majority of justices, segregation could be justified because the train cars for whites and the train cars for blacks were of equal quality. Thus was born the separate but equal doctrine that provided legal cover for segregation for two generations to come. In reality, of course, separate was never equal, which is exactly the dilemma the Mendez family and thousands of other families of Mexican heritage were facing in Orange County in 1944. Gonzalo and Felicitas rallied the Mexican-American community. They recruited four other plaintiffs from other school districts that also practiced segregation. With attorney David Marcus, they extended the complaint to over 5,000 other Mexican-American children in Orange County. LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens, joined the cause. They reached out to other ethnic communities, and eventually the NAACP, the American Jewish Congress, the Japanese-American Citizens League, and the ACLU all joined in. But all of this came at a cost to Gonzalo. He experienced a lot of hate. Um, you know, you don't make changes like this in a manner that doesn't create waves. And you find people who are on the other side of the argument who can become very passionate and very um, destructive. So he had, a, there was a lot, there were the so-called hate crimes where they were in large number back then. This is Dr. Raul Mijares, the current Orange County Superintendent of Schools. It took a lot of courage for them to stand up for it. And I think that the, the sort of the resilient thing in that, and persistency that he demonstrated was based on the fact that uh, he was frustrated, probably very angry, 
that, and he was a businessman, so he, he was astute. In other words, he understood, uh, and, and I think he understood also his rights as an American. Um, but he just felt there was something wrong with this. So Gonzalo and Felicitas kept moving forward. Judge Paul J. McCormick called the case of Mendez versus Westminster to order on July 5, 1945. That morning, Sylvia and Gonzalo Jr. made the truck ride with their parents to the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles, as they would each morning at the trial. I remember going every day and sitting in the front row and, and not absolutely not knowing what they were fighting for. I thought they were just fighting for me to get into the white school. I don't even remember going. We all sat in the front row, Gonzalo. We all sat in the front row. No wonder and, I hate courts. <laughs> and uh, we would sit there, and, and, and at that time, your parents, all they, all they had to do was to give you a look if you started wiggling or doing something. Yep. They didn't have to say, be still or nothing. They just looked at you if you started to move, so you would just sit there really quiet and every day that you went to court. Mm -hmm. That's why I tell the story that I didn't realize what they were fighting till, till I was 10 years old. At the time, I thought they were just trying to get me into a beautiful school with a good playground. Almihades describes the arguments made by the districts. The school districts were using um, this body of knowledge that did not apply to approve of or to sanction the de jour segregation, you know, segregation by law that occurred in the lives of these students. They were saying, number one, their language was a problem. And yet these kids were all born here and they all spoke English. <laughs> they, and you know, they tried to claim that, well, they're Spanish speakers or they speak uh, Spanglish and the language was an issue, uh, which was just not true because the kids all spoke perfect English. Um, others have said, well, uh, there have cultural differences that make it hard for them to fit in. In fact, many argued that it was in their interest that we did this, that we would provide services for them. In fact, they didn't provide services for them. These were some of the most beat up, uh, poverty-stricken schools you'd find that were definitely um, in need of many resources. Um, others have even argued, um, like in the book, The Mexican-American Child, which was uh, written right around that time, argued, I think in the late 50s, mid to late 50s, argued that it was an issue of cognition. Like they didn't learn as well as the other kids or they would not become tomorrow's leaders. So we had to kind of teach them their role kind of stuff. You know, and then I read uh, of the superintendent at the time in the Westminster said, well, they have a hygiene problem. The hygiene was not the same as, you know, the white children. So, I mean, it was just this stuff that was horrifying to think about today. Because you have, you have to build a theory upon why you do what you do. And that's what they were thinking. And uh, Gonzalo challenged all of that. Ron Wenkart, chief counsel for the Orange County Department of Education, and one of the leading school attorneys in California, describes the outcome of the trial. In the district court made some very specific findings about uh, the harms of segregation, the uh, distinctions that are made between citizens solely because of their ancestry, quoting some prior cases that the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled on. David Marcus attacked the district's claims that the children had been segregated due to their educational needs and their language deficiencies. Marcus pointed out that the children in question were American citizens who spoke English fluently. These families were having their right to equal protection under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution violated. 
In Marcus's case brief, he referred to the four freedoms championed by President Franklin Roosevelt. Here's FDR. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear. Marcus wrote, Of what avail is our theory of democracy if the principles of equal rights, of equal protection, and equal obligations are not practiced? Of what use are the four freedoms if freedom is not allowed? Of what avail are the thousands upon thousands of lives of Mexican Americans who sacrificed their all for their country in this great war of freedom if freedom of education is denied them? Of what avail is our education if the system that propounds it denies the equality of all. Judge McCormick ultimately agreed. It took him seven months to complete his written opinion issued on February 18, 1946. McCormick ordered the Orange County districts to stop segregating their students. The districts appealed the case, but on April 14, 1947, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously upheld Judge McCormick's position laying the groundwork for the Brown versus the Board of Education case that would come seven years later. I, I think the, the judge looked at the cases and felt that, uh, that there was no basis for discriminating under the 14th Amendment, despite Plessy versus Ferguson, which was still the law, and despite the fact that Brown versus Board of Education hadn't been decided yet. I think the judge and the Ninth Circuit both felt that the 14th Amendment said equal protection under the laws means you cannot treat uh, people differently on the basis of race, and you cannot put uh, Mexican-Americans into an inferior school. And there was no doubt it was an inferior school. Although they argue separate but equal, the court just rejected that out of hand. And so I, I think that both the judge and in the district court and the Court of Appeals felt strongly that the 14th Amendment meant what it said, equal protection under the law, and that you cannot segregate uh, Mexican-American students into inferior schools. And I think that, that was the argument that carried the day. And I, I think that was an argument that Thurgood Marshall made strongly in Brown versus Board of Education, that separate but equal is not equal. In a wonderful historical convergence, on the very next day, Jackie Robinson played his first game for the Brooklyn Dodgers and broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. The key to understanding both these events is the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So what exactly is the 14th Amendment? We hear lawyers refer to it, but what does it say? And how does it apply to cases like this one? To understand that, we have to go back to the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of Americans died in the battle to reaffirm the core principles of the United States. Abraham Lincoln declared freedom for enslaved people by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. But Lincoln was afraid that this change in the affirmation of equal rights for all Americans would be temporary if they were not enshrined in the Constitution. So Lincoln and his allies advocated for amendments to the Constitution. There were three. The 13th Amendment, 
permanently outlawing slavery was ratified in 1865, the year of Lincoln's assassination. The 14th Amendment took longer to ratify. Lincoln's allies pushed it forward against the objections of President Andrew Johnson. Here's Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, read by Justice Eileen Moore from the 4th District Court of Appeals in Orange County. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The 14th Amendment was finally ratified in 1868. The 15th Amendment, establishing the right to vote for all citizens, was ratified in 1870. For a few years after the Civil War during this period known as Reconstruction, African Americans took advantage of new political and educational opportunities. But it didn't last. Now the reality, of course, the historical reality is we passed the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment, but they were largely unenforced for many years until the 1950s, after World War II. Uh, you know, we did, there was the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which has been on the books all these years, but if when you go back in history and you look at how many lawsuits were filed under that law, very few until the 1950s. Prejudice against Americans of African ancestry led to new oppression and the imposition of segregation, often accompanied by horrific violence like that perpetrated by the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan even had a significant presence in Orange County well into the 20th century. People of many ethnicities were subjected to discriminatory practices. California law, for example, excluded Native Americans and students of Chinese and Japanese origin from so-called white schools. But here in the 1940s, Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendez and their three children were challenging all those years of discrimination and segregation. And they were going back to the 14th Amendment, beyond Plessy versus Ferguson, to recover Lincoln's vision of liberty and justice for all. And they won. Sylvia Mendez finally got to attend Westminster School. When Judge McCormick in the Superior Court of Los Angeles stated that separate was not equal, the first person to ever say that, first judge, that they went ahead with the first judgment in Westminster and integrated us. They integrated us in Westminster. And what they did was they put the older kids in the old school, Mexican school, and they put the younger kids in the white school. And I remember, I have a picture. I'll show it to you in a little bit. Right there, I have it. Right there, Gonzalo, you in the white school. And, and we went to the white school. They didn't stay in Westminster long, though. They had leased the farm from a Japanese-American family that had been relocated to an internment camp during the war. The war ends and the Minamitsas come back and they are so nice to us that they allow us to stay there and live with them while we're growing the last crop of, of asparagus so we could have enough money to move out and my dad buy another cantina. Because my father, even though they were making, my mother makes, made a statement that one time they were making like a thousand a day because of the crop and the army was taking and they needed all this. But even then, they didn't have any money left because, the, and so when the Minamisas came back, they were good enough to, for, to let us stay there and live with them and grow that last crop of asparagus 
and finished packing the tomatoes that we had gotten from Mr. You know, we had rented a lease from Mr. Blue, this other parcel of land, and sent all that to, to market. And then we moved back to, to Santana. The Minumitsu family and the Mendez family worked together to save the farm. Then the Mendez children went back to Santa Ana schools. But this time, they went to what had up to now been an all-white school. So when we came back to Santa Ana, and the school board had appealed it and said, just because Judge McCormick says separate is not equal, we're not going to go with it. We're going to appeal it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And we're right in the middle of the appeals when we come back to Santa Ana. And my dad goes and tells whoever the superintendent of school was at that time. And told him, I'm taking my children to the white school, even though we're in the appeal. Mm-hmm. And he takes us to that school. He took us to the school Jefferson. across the street from Floral Park, which is an all-white school, and it was uh, Jefferson Elementary. And it's not there anymore. And he took us and enrolled us in there, and we were the only white Mexican kids in that school. And, uh, and all the elementary kids from uh, Floral Park, which was predominantly white at that time, were going to that school. So we're thrown into this school with uh, nothing but white kids. So... Mm-hmm. The teacher said, as I walked into school, do you remember? No. I walked into I walked into my classroom, and he said, this is Miss Sylvia Mendes. Everybody said hi, and everybody said hi. And we had been in the integrated school in Westminster already because Westminster had integrated us, so I thought it was going to be the mm-hmm. same. So, so I walk in there, and everybody said, hi, Sylvia. And the school bell rings, and we go out for recess. And when I get out to recess, this little white boy comes and says, what are you doing here? You're a Mexican, don't you know Mexicans aren't supposed to be here? What are you doing here? You shouldn't even be here. All this time I had gone to court every day, thought I was listening, and never realizing what they were fighting for, never. Because when that little boy said that to me, I started crying and crying. I went into the school, into the teachers, crying and crying, and then I went home. I told my mother, I'm not going back to that school. They don't want us in that school. They don't want Mexicans in that school. And my mother says, Sylvia, you were in court every day. Don't you realize what you were fighting? Yes, so we could get to that beautiful school in Westminster. She says, no, Sylvia, that's not what we were fighting. We were fighting because under God, we're all equal. And you belong at that school just like everybody else belongs to that school. And that's what we were fighting for. Because you're just as good as that little white boy. And yes, you're going to go back to school. And yes, I went back to school. And I tell the students, and guess what I discovered? I discovered that everybody's not born with bigotry, with hatred in their heart. Because before you know it, we were all being invited to their homes, to their parties. And we grew up in integrated schools. In Santa Ana. Sylvia, Gonzalo Jr., and Jerome went on to attend fully integrated Santa Ana High School, where Gonzalo Jr. is still active with the Alumni Association. From there, Sylvia went on to nursing school. Times were not easy. She and the whole family had to make major sacrifices. These sacrifices took their toll on Gonzalo Sr. He died young in 1964. Some argue that it may have hastened his own death because he died at age 51. And um, even back then, I was young. After the case was decided, people quickly forgot about it. After they won the case, we didn't, nobody really talked about it. My dad said, my mother said, she tried to tell people and they wouldn't believe her. Nobody listened, so she, you she just, just stopped talking her. about it. So when she was dying, I went, I went, we both went on to college and everything, and I went on to become assistant nursing director of a hospital. You know, I went on and became a nurse. And so... When my mother got real sick, she, we moved here 
we've been in the South for 40 some years. We moved here and my mother would say, Celia, nobody knows about this case. You need to, everybody needs to go out and talk about it. So what happened was that my, my niece went around it and did that petition to get the school na named after, after my mother and father. Dr. Almihades was superintendent of the Santa Ana Unified School District at that time. The board agreed that it should be named after Gonzalo Mendez, and later his wife's name was considered, and so we ended up designating the school as the Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendez School. Sylvia speaks to students at Mendez Intermediate several times a year, encouraging them to be the next generation of leaders in Orange County. And she speaks at schools and colleges and universities across the country, spreading the message about courage and justice. The impact of Mendez versus Westminster went far beyond Orange County. This is Justice Eileen Moore. At the time that the Ninth Circuit decision came down, Earl Warren was governor of California. So this is 1947. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal affirmed Judge McCormick. And kept the injunction in place. Two months later, then Governor Earl Warren signed a bill outlawing segregation in all of California schools. And that was the first time any state in our union outlawed segregation in its schools. Mendez laid the groundwork for Brown versus the Board of Education. In 1953, Brown versus Board of Education was argued before the United States Supreme Court but one of the justices died, it was the Chief Justice, and President Eisenhower appointed Governor Earl Warren to be the new Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And Earl Warren is the one that actually authored the opinion of Brown versus Board of Education. So we had Earl Warren from being Attorney General to being the Governor to being the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall was Mika's Cure, or friend of the court, in the Mendez case, and he's the one that argued Brown versus Board of Education. He wrote the brief for it, and he argued it both times, in 53 and 54. You might also know that 13 years later, in 1967, Thurgood Marshall was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States, two years before Earl Warren retired. When the Court of Appeals was built in Santa Ana in 2009, Justice Moore commissioned a painting of the Mendez case to hang permanently in the foyer of the court. You can see it there today. So the Mendez family changed the world. They made America a better place for all of us. So how can we now follow in the footsteps of the Mendez family? Let me suggest three ways. First, we can celebrate our diversity. We're so much stronger when we are diverse, when you have diversity at all, at all in all levels. Uh, it makes us all stronger and better, more enriched. While we've made tremendous progress toward a more inclusive society since the battles fought by the Mendez family 70 years ago, this is a vital time to reaffirm the importance of diversity. Second, we can champion universal, free, inclusive public education available to all students. The Mendez family had to fight for these opportunities. So have millions of other Americans over the past two centuries. You'll hear about more of them in future episodes of the Deeper Learning Podcast. I think it's changed the perceptions of many people. A lot of the business people in this community care, most of them, if not all of them, care about the education of our students because, you know, we're all in this together. 
What happens in the center affects the northern part, the southern part of the county, and um, if we don't work as you know brothers and sisters, uh, uh, we'll all be affected. Third, we can live out our American ideals. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Sylvia's vision. Gonzalo and I went to speak, I speak at, at Orange Coast College, and yeah. this yellow little boy said, there's no, what do you mean about American dream? I was telling him about uh, the American dream, how we can make our own American dream. He says, there's no such thing as the American dream. I says, yes, there is. I am a product of the American dream. You just have to fight hard. I remember when, when my parents lost all their money and how, how he had to go out and work and how I had to go, I would go to a cannery there in, on First Street. Case and Swing. Case and Swing. And we're from 3 to 11 at night packing peaches and then get up in the morning and go to Orange Coast College at 7 o'clock to my nursing school. That's how I became a registered nurse, by working. I mean, there's, we didn't have loans. We didn't have student loans or, or scholarships that we could get, you know, in, at that time. So you have to fight and you have to study and you have to make sure that whatever it is you want, there's nothing that can stop you. We face many challenges in America, but Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendez and their children point us in the right direction, back to our core principles. What has made America so great has to be diversity. I mean, we, we had an amazing constitution. The leadership of this country at its birth was phenomenal, ordained by God in my opinion you know, sovereignly led, really. And, um, but what we did was we pretty much created a country where anybody can come and, you know, embrace the American ideals and um, take your place, you, you know, and, 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 and it brought in different languages and cultures. And I think that that's the genius of this great country. So I think we have to understand that um, today that cases like the Mendez um, do provide a template of, of uh, what we should not do and what we should do. Thanks for joining us for the Deeper Learning Podcast. Exploring stories like this one helps us think more deeply about life, learning, and education. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us at communications at ocde.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can find all the resources for this episode, including an image of the Mendez painting, at newsroom.ocde.us. The Deeper Learning Podcast is a production of the Orange County Department of Education. Thanks to County Superintendent Dr. Al Mijares, Justice Eileen Moore, Chief Counsel Ron Wenkart, and to our podcast team, Ian Hannigan, Laura Watson, Greg Lammers, Daru Sisavath, and Shane Klein, and to Sandra Roby from Chapman University. And special thanks to Sylvia Mendez and Gonzalo Mendez Jr. We'll see you next time on the Deeper Learning Podcast. <laughs>